Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Well, wake up, wake up. It's another big day in the world. And on Alex Garrett Podcasting tonight, we're actually going to focus on Watergate. But real quick, real fast. Today's ruling at SCOTUS about the open carry laws in New York State. There are gun laws in New York State. There needs to be a way for Second Amendment uh, abiders, law-abiding gun owners, to carry in a city that's seemingly becoming crazy. At the same time, how do we prevent it from being in the hands of the bad guy? It, it, it is going to be a very fine line. It, it could be a very fatal fine line. And because I'm a Libra, a balance could be met. We'll have to see about that as the days go on. But right now, I want to turn to Randall Wallace. He's the host of Bridging the Political Gap podcast. Randall with one L underscore Wallace on Twitter. And we talked about a different side to Richard Nixon as Watergate turns 50. Richard Nixon is totally innocent of Watergate. Something I've never heard of before. But Randall, your podcast, your views, some might find it extreme, but what say you? Well, I don't know that I would find them extreme. I, I'm, and I, I think totally innocent might not be the, the right description, but, um, you know, I, I do, I think, uh, present the case. If, you, if, you, if you've kept up with my podcast, actually, we've been on um, for several months on Richard Nixon. And so I have, uh, I, I believe he's probably one of the greatest presidents in American history. I think he's arguably stands there with Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. And, um, there's no question, uh, you know, in all of American history, you know, you've got the founding period, you've got the Civil War, and you've got World War II, and you've got Vietnam. Those are your four, you know, genuine crisis points. And he got us out of that war <laughs> and, um, and restructured, the, I would say, the, 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 the way the world was working, um, uh, you know, by well, you know, he was on triangulation. He was on his way to a re-election, wasn't he? That's what the other talk about all this is. Yeah, uh, you know, it. it uh, you know, Watergate is, you know, a, a kind of a separate issue. But he had triangulated the communist world. You know, he really wasn't as popular until you roll into 1972, which you know is something sometimes people don't realize. Um, you know, the, the war had dragged on, even though he had, had dropped the number of troops, you know, and we were in the the, the motion of, of um, what we call it, uh, Vietnamization, turning the war over to the, to the South Vietnamese to defend themselves. Um, so, you know, they were, they, were, they were gearing up for what was going to be a tough campaign. You know, I would say by the time he comes back from the Soviet Union, uh, you know, he's on track then to to walk away with it, and then the incompetence of the McGovern campaign is, you know, no offense to George McGovern, who was a war hero, but, you know, they pick a vice presidential candidate that had had uh, electric shock treatments, and they had to pull him off, and they didn't do it very well, pulling him off the ticket. You know, so the groundwork was there for the yeah. kind of kind of tidal wave that was going to come in. Well, let me, um, let's go back to 1968, because then they beat Johnson in that election, and was there people like what we call the deep state today, upset he won that election to become president the first time? I think, you know, the, the deep state is, a, you know, you know I, I'm not, I, I've always told people I'm not a particular conspiracy theorist. Um, I do think, however, that, you know, if you really look at 30-something years of, of history there, 
from, from the time Herbert Hoover lost in 1932 um, until Nixon, you only have an eight-year period when Eisenhower was president. The, the Republicans had anybody in the White House. There's only like a two-year period, I think, when the House is in the hands of the Republicans. Right there as Truman's going out the door, I think it's the first couple of years that, that Eisenhower was in. And, and so everything was built around the Democratic Party. <clears throat> you know, they controlled... The, all, the, the, all the chambers, they controlled you know, all, the, the, all the appointments to the courts and all the bureaucracy that had grown so huge under Franklin Roosevelt and and, and Lyndon Johnson. And so, I, you know, I think there was a clear, <laughs> you know, Nixon walked in there and he is the first president since Zachary Taylor to have both the houses of Congress in somebody else's hands and the bureaucracy wasn't happy about him. And, you know, interesting. You know, you the know. military was spying on him. And it, 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 at one point, uh, the, the Radford, I'm trying to think of what it's actually called, the Admiral Moore, uh, I think it's called the Radford Moore affair, but they had a guy that was a, a stenographer, secretary type, that was assigned to Henry Kissinger, and he's rifling through Kissinger's stuff and copying everything to the, to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they're, and they're handing it out to the press, you know. Um, and getting, By the way, Kissinger was uh, is still a very big voice today in today's world, which is fascinating. Kissinger's got to be in his 80s, 90s, which is amazing. 99. But what what you're talking about also, I feel like lingers into what the Washington Post first uncovered, which was the Pentagon Papers, and I feel like there's a whole disconnectivity, is there not? There is. Obviously, the FBI, you know, you, you had a very other unusual situation that happened, and, and that's what I would say. It, it, you know, you, it's a lot of unconnected um, people who had reasons to want Richard Nixon to fall. But in the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover dies. And he dies, I want to say in May maybe of 72, so right before uh, Watergate happens, the burglary happens in, in June. And uh, you have a fight going on within the FBI between uh, a guy named Sullivan, whose first name escapes me at the moment, and Mark Felt. And Nixon, who doesn't, you know, wants to, to, you know, they always say he wants to take control of the FBI. In reality, what he wants to do is make sure you don't have another J. Edgar Hoover who can blackmail half of Congress. And so and he puts Patrick Gray. the whole building after him after all that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? I, I, J. Edgar Hoover in the 30s and 40s, he stayed too long, you know, and, and power, absolute power and, and a job that you can after you die sometimes too long. Because there's a lot of good things he did do. I mean, he set the FBI up to be the law enforcement's, you know, the foundation for what it is today. But, you know, he's there too long. He's keeping files on all these people. And Nixon's trying to get control of that. And he puts Patrick Gray, L. Patrick Gray in. And, and, you know, I'll say this. That guy, he had huge resentments toward Nixon. But he was an honest guy. He's like the, the truly innocent person in Watergate. You know, he gets told to burn some stuff that was a, a document that had nothing to do with Watergate and really didn't. And he did it, and he gets himself almost lined up for being indicted himself. You know, he didn't have any criminal intent to it. But he's trying to run the FBI, and you got Mark Felt undermining him at every turn. <laughs> and, and Mark uh, Felt, for those who may not be familiar, although how do you not, Mark Felt is what they would call deep throat, uh, yeah. revealed later on in life to Bernstein and Woodward. See, here's the thing about Bernstein and Woodward. They're still capitalizing on this, all this, and – are they journalists or are they media hounds? You know, that's one of the things they've become now, no? 
Oh yeah, they've uh, they, they they it's made a career for both of them, and and uh, I wish well actually Nixon did probably live to see some of the stuff about Woodward, but you know they turned around and uh, one of them was uh, I think Woodward was the editor of a of a story that um, about Jimmy's world where it turned out the whole thing was not true. I grant you can't really blame him for that. The reporter lied about it, but you know he was involved in that, and there was this claim that he interviewed. William Casey, who'd been the head of the CIA when Reagan was there, when the guy had a brain tumor and was surrounded by guards and nobody was going to be able to get in there. You know, I think he's always tried to live up to that Watergate story. And uh, you can decide for right yourself whether you think here. it's... Now, I don't know what you think of Trump or not, but it's it's like, is it an insult to compare what they think he's done, which actually was propagated by Hillary in a way, in a lot of ways, Um is an insult to Trump to compare him to Watergate. I, not to Trump. I mean, if you, if you, I think, I think it's an unfair comparison to President Nixon. Um, now, I'm not a, I'm not a particular, I'm, I'm not a never. I was voted for Trump. I supported him, so I'm not a, you know, I'm not a never Trumper. I don't think he's the greatest president in American history. Where you hear a lot of people say it, but you know, all of this. I don't know that Congress ever proved, or the, this January 6th committee has proven, at least to me, or the, or the, the impeachment people, that that Trump incited that riot, or that There's he no knew about it. There's no referral, by the way. That's important to note. And yeah, I still and, think him doing that speech was stupid. But on your point, you know, they haven't found anything really. Yeah, they've got no proof that he incited that riot. Um, I, I, I'm a little. I was disturbed by the fact that he went back to the White House and he didn't do anything for two hours about it, but. But like you said, there's no criminal referral, and I don't know that I've seen anything that says to me that, that you can really say he did anything but throw red meat out to a crowd that he went to speak to. And uh, no, so every Randall politician Wallace in America does that. So with Randall Wallace, and he's got this uh, podcast about Watergate, and the podcast is called Bridging the Political Gap. Uh, and you're an author as well, Always Vote Your Conscience, which was a Ted Cruz modicum at the RNC in 2016, in which people thought it was a slight on Trump. So it's interesting you use that uh, terminology. Uh, well, the title of the book. Exactly. Always. Yeah, yeah. Your Always vote your conscience. Yeah. I, well, it's actually some advice. I was also an elected official, so I was a city councilman in Myrtle Beach and was involved in politics for many, many years. And the advice I was given by a county council member who was the longest-serving uh, council member in the history of Horry County, which is the county that I live in in South Carolina, his name is James Frazier, um, had told me, you know, if you want to have a long career in politics, always vote your conscience, don't take it personally, and don't find the same old battles over and over again. So that's where the title of the book came from. And I had run for Congress in 2012. In fact, I lost to Tom Rice um, in the Republican primary, and Tom Rice, of course, went on to be the congressman that voted to impeach Donald Trump, and just and was just defeated a week ago. Well, so. Let me ask you this: is we'll get back to Watergate in a minute, but sometimes I have the sneaking suspicion the Republicans are just really betting on this red wave, but they may not be working hard enough to cinch it, slash hoping the Democrats sink themselves even more. So, <laughs> do you see a red wave truly, or do you think the de- Republicans still have work to do to get that to happen? Uh, well, I think that you always need to be working because anything can happen can can change the tide. But I have to say, I have not seen anything as the incompetence so far, which has been a surprise to me that the, of the Biden administration and the left 
you know, they just overreach. Um, you can almost bet they're going to do it when they've got control of anything. And, you know, you've got inflation's out of control. Gas prices are sky high. Those are all the recipes for a, a midterm is going to be huge. But Republicans need to be keep working at it, you know, to make sure that they're <laughs> sitting in the right spot. And I, and I wish to – I'd love to see the Republicans with a, a well-thought-out plan. You know, when we took over Congress in 1994, when the Republicans did that, and I am one, but I, I was 23, but I was working on campaigns then, and Newt Gingrich had – you know, the contract with America, and it laid out exactly what they wanted to do. And I would love to see the Republicans be able to put something like that together to to run on. Um, well, they have to do – they definitely need a little more of a plan, I think, uh, on that front. You're right. I mean, the best Democrats all the time is what it is, but you've got to have plans to show that you're going to be different, you know. So we'll see where that goes. But I want to get into Nixon's personality because I think one reason Watergate happened is because Nobody liked the guy in Washington, and he just wasn't a personal president, right? Yeah, I, I think – and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that that cover-up happened and and to whatever level of culpability that Nixon did have. Um, you know, because I've always heard people say, well, if Richard Nixon had just come clean and washed his hands, everybody would have forgiven him. Well, they hadn't shown any um, history of that from 1947 to 1972 when they'd accused him of everything that you could come up with. Um, so, I, I mean, I can certainly understand why he hears a screw-up of his campaign staff and he, you know, to whatever level he was was involved or at least tried to, to manage it, which, I, which, you know, is perfectly legal. You know, there's a difference between containment and um, – you know, obstruction of justice, in my opinion, and I, and I think most people would say that. Um, you know, he he had no history of anybody forgiving him for anything, accusing him of every. Uh, you know, here's a guy who who defeated Jerry Voorhees, who was an incumbent who had not for Congress, who who just didn't take him seriously, and Nixon beat him, and then he gets into this nasty Senate race, and everybody accuses him of being the nasty party in it. The truth is, Helen Kagan Douglas started that fight in 1950, I think, was the year that he ran for the Senate. The fun scandal, Adelaide Stevenson had a fund just exactly like it. He couldn't even account for the money he'd spent. Nixon could account for every dime in the, in the fund that he had. You know, I mean, there had been this double standard about Richard Nixon through his entire career. And so, you know, when something like this happened, I can totally understand why he was afraid to, you know, well, mess up so to whatever level he needed to mess up. Because he had enemies is what you're also saying. Yeah, and they were determined in it. And, and, you can look at uh, – if you listen to my podcast, I have a phone call with John Dean early on when James McCord is, is you know, was the security director, and he's one of the defendants. And uh, F. Lee Bailey, somebody is trying to get F. Lee Bailey to come on and be a part of the uh, – John Dean was the counsel, right? John Dean was counsel to the president, and at this point he's still working. And it's at the start of one of my shows that's up right now, this, the last three or four um, – but anyway, the caller, the, the guy says, we're not after James McCord. We're after Richard Nixon. And that's, I mean, this is early on in this whole thing. So right there tells you <laughs> that was the goal from the get-go. Um, and our, Nixon's own men handed them the handed them the sword, as he, as Nixon himself said later, you know, for them to use on him. But well, uh, Randall, they, they had I was to ask you about – so I read a book a while ago that Pat Buchanan, the famous um, – you know, Republican, and he ran for president multiple times. But he said mm-hmm. he had a role in, you know, and Nixon, you know, destroying the tapes. He said that he advised them. Can you expand on that for us at all? Yeah, Pat Buchanan. There was 
when the tapes were revealed, um, Nixon was in the hospital with viral pneumonia, and you know he had a window of time that those tapes could have been destroyed. And he had a lawyer named Lynn Garment, who was an old friend of his at, at his law firm, and he felt like it would be an obstruction of justice, and you could get an article of impeachment for destroying the tapes. And Vice President Agnew and Pat Buchanan and Al Haig and um, I think maybe Fred Bazart, who was a lawyer first, who had actually started out in the Defense Department, and Strom Thurmond, who was my um, my senator and a guy that I had helped on campaigns with when I was in my twenties. He had been an aide to one hundred, by the way, right? Or, he did. A little over a hundred. He was like a hundred and six months when he passed away. Six months after he left office, but he served till he was hundred. But those guys had all said, you need to burn the tapes. And uh, John Connolly, who was the Treasury Secretary, so they had all tried to talk him into it. And, you know, people may not know, um, because and there's been some some level of, this is the other thing that the, the press will shade the facts, but the President Spryer and Richard Nixon just owned their tapes, papers, everything. They just took it with them. And, um, and so Nixon felt like he owned those tapes. They were his. And so he decided not to destroy them and... That turned out to be a mistake, but uh, all right. So um, I've, I've got to ask you about this. There's a public library in his name, and I kind of laugh because I'm like, "How do you have a positive spin in his own library about Nixon based on what we all heard and 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 know?" I guess from the media point of view, but just from history also. Oh, in the presidential library, yeah. Well, it uh, it's it, that's interesting because it's a uh, it was a private library. His is the only presidential library that was. Uh, run by the Richard Nixon Foundation to start with, and it was not part of the federal system. And um, and some of this, I think, is actually – I don't share quite the, the 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 hard feelings that some people do about the Nixon Watergate exhibit, and I've only been one time, but and it was after the, 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 the federal people took it back over. You know, they accused it of being a hero worship in there, but um, but he does – it shows him very positively, and but it does give you a detailed look at Watergate, um, they had a director there named Tim Naftali that, who is who lives in New York now, um, who got into a huge fight. But he he put, you know, a lot of the dirty laundry out into the to the, into the Watergate exhibit. I kind of I agree with the foundation though. They took a lot of things that were snippets that were, um, you know, maybe not in full content text, and and a lot of some of the stuff that Nixon would say in private, you know, is in the in the exhibit. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is, a, you get it all, warts and all. And I would say that um, Nixon's is the most, um, where you got both sides of an of a argument at his library because of this fight between the federal people when they, when they did take the library over. And maybe at Lyndon Johnson's in the whole system, most of these libraries are just hero worship of the whichever figure, you know, they're, they're representing. But, but Nixon's does do, you do see some of the warts there. And I think Lyndon Johnson, to his credit, he wanted that and his, and so uh, so his has got some some of the negatives maybe that are that are there. Back with Randall Wallace for another segment of Alex Garrett podcasting. After this, here's your host, Alex Garrett. And welcome back inside of this extended edition of the podcast. And to web my guest right now, Randall Wallace. We continue about Nixon, Watergate. And what that whole era means to America today. Is Nixon's, is this scandal like the culmination of everything people were feeling for at least 10 or 15 years after the assassination of Kennedy? Because there was turmoil 
right after that assassination happened. And I feel like it might have been a frustrating boiling point with Washington and, you know, Nixon added to it by, by having them delete the tapes. Yeah, it just feels like a culmination of what happened post-Kennedy uh, assassination. If you if – you, if, I mean, I don't want to shamelessly plug my podcast, but um, my, uh, it was originally based on the book that I wrote. And But when I got – I decided to take a look at the whole era, and I start with the Kennedy assassination because really there's an assassination three weeks before Kennedy was killed uh, of DM – um, and the, the president of South Vietnam was assassinated, you know, like the first or second of November of 1963, and the Kennedy administration had a hand in all that. And because nobody knows what the game plan was, because Kennedy was killed three weeks later, and Johnson, you know, uh, had held DM in a higher esteem and kind of felt like we should help them. And that's kind of what led us into the war. But you do see the upheaval that began with that, and the upscaling of the, you know, the of the war or the you know, the more invested we got into it and, and how we got there. And, you know, the Pentagon Papers that you had mentioned earlier, that they don't even mention the Nixon administration. They, uh, they're they all about how that war escalated under John, John Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson. And uh, I think I, I tried to show that, hey, this was, this was a boiling point for the whole country and a hugely divided thing. And by the time Nixon gets there, to get to the White House, there's 550,000 um, troops in Vietnam, and the war has led to, uh, you know, upheaval. You got political assassinations in the country. You also have the civil rights movement going on simultaneously with that, and uh, and that's how. Well, if you, you know, were in '94, so you obviously didn't live through all this. But what was researching it like for you? Well, you know what, I was a history major in college, which you know that that make me a historian. But it was a history major in college, and this was the thing that I was the most interested in. So I knew. A lot of the 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 overview of it, so that made it easy for me to know. Hey, I know what the timeline is, um, you know. And then the tapes uh, are fascinating. Interestingly enough, the Lyndon Johnson tapes have been in the public domain, where everybody can listen to them for a long time. So I knew Lady Bird tapes. and Lyndon talking to each other. Oh yeah, and Lady Bird was the one who insisted because they were sealed for a long time, but she wanted them released. And and so you had access to that. What has been fascinating to me, even though I was a much bigger Nixon fan, and I am an unabashed fan of him, haven't been. Um, the only ones that were really out there were the Watergate tapes, you know, abuse of power. And then uh, some of the historians who really disliked him loved to mind the fits and the moments when he would get angry and say things that, you know, he shouldn't have said. And, you know, if it, whether it was racial or, you know, anti-Semitic, they, they made sure those were out there, but the really most of them weren't. And so there was a site called NixonTakes.org run, run by a historian named Luke Nichter. And uh, I was able to go on there, and he was like, wait, and I mean, to set up, he, he, he let me, because I contacted him, but he was like, you know, have at it, you know, all through them. So I went through those, and that took some, um, you know, studying to make sure I knew what was in what order. Um, but it was fun to do because I don't think anybody had heard the more positive tapes or listening to him. You know, he's, he, as he's agonizing on trying how to get our POWs out of Vietnam, you know, at one point he's like, we're going to bomb them until they let them go. You know, he's, he's, uh, and, and the more positive stuff that, that, that are on those tapes. And I hope people will, that's what I kind of hope people will listen for as they go through is you, you hear a president get working to get us out of that war and get relations with China, knowing that if once he has the the, the door open to China, the Soviets going to come, you know, and, and and start working with us. 
because you, you kind of triangulated the communist world. And really, by the time you get to the end of 73 or the end of 72, um, and he has to do that Christmas bombing to make sure the North, make the North Vietnamese come and negotiate in good faith. But they're on an island by themselves because the two superpowers are wanting to get this war over with too. And you know he changed the whole landscape. And you know, and I really, the so the the communists and the and the and, uh, and the United States have been doing these proxy wars for 20 years in Korea, Vietnam, and other other places around the globe. Those became more and more irrelevant. And you had a. And what about now? Is there, is there a proxy war in Ukraine that we're going to be baited into, or is this totally different from that? I, it's semi. It's totally. It's totally different in because the, the Russians are not the players anymore, and communism. I and mean, he's just playing out dictator uh, or close enough to one. Um, he's an old KGB agent, um, Putin. I think he's trying to figure out a way to reestablish himself, and he has cozied up to the Chinese, but I think he's trying to bring back the old glory days of the Soviet Union, whereas which is scary for Americans or should be anyway. I think so very much. Well, let me ask you this because I I made this point that after watching the documentary, I said, you know, 50 years later, Washington hasn't learned anything from Watergate, meaning it's still the same devices, still the same sneaky tactics. We've got surveillance on a lot of people over the years. They didn't learn anything from this, did they? No, they have not. And the left, you know, I'm a partisan, so I'm kind of frustrated to see it's all so extreme now. But you're getting a dose of how the left has operated forever. I mean, we're always the bad guys. <laughs> you know, everything we do is terrible. Uh, but they excuse, and you know, and I don't want to get you know to be what aboutism. But you know, if you can look, they they kind of frame the whole thing with Nixon as, as something that was so out of the ordinary. But that step and and the and the seventy-seven to zero vote that set up the Urban Committee and the Watergate investigation. They don't even bother to tell you that all the Republicans, which there weren't that many at the time. All but the few that didn't like Nixon to start with, like Lowell Weicker, refused to vote. So that's how it was seventy-seven to nothing. <laughs> it wasn't, and and the in the the vote to form that committee, the fight was over the fact that the Republicans said, "Fine, if you want to investigate shenanigans in an election, we're going to look at sixty-eight and sixty-four in nineteen sixty as well, because there were well-known cases of uh, Johnson using the FBI back then. He could use the FBI because Hoover was willing to do it." And you know, in 60, you know, Joe Kennedy was a big factor in that whole thing. Uh, Joe, Joe Kennedy, the mayor of Chicago, you know, there's a lot out there. You know, whether or not the election, you, you, Nixon was, didn't fight it because, you know, you couldn't prove it. And, but it, it was less than, you know, it was like 1%, I think, of the vote nationally that separated the two of them. You start changing electoral college votes around and Nixon wins. And uh, And there was a lot of voter fraud in Chicago and Illinois and, and in Texas, though I think Texas would have voted Democratic anyway because of LBJ being on the ticket and the fact that it was in the South. But um, still. Yeah, see, to me, it's okay to question it, but today I feel like people want to take to the streets over it, and I say, well, that's not the answer either. Just And neither is the answer to stop voting. You know, they could have won Georgia if they went to the polls, but even Trump said don't vote. What a stupid thing to say. It's so Violence wasn't the answer, and ignoring the election either. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've, I, I was keeping up with things. That was the thing I never could figure out. If you've got a situation where you've changed the rules, which I mean, I think that's where you had the opening for all the questioning. But you've changed a lot of the rules in these states, and you're telling people to go vote early because of the COVID. You know, people want to keep to do the social distancing and all that. 
why wouldn't you just tell your people, go vote early? And I think that's where the Democrats had this get-out-the-vote operation that probably is how Biden won, because um, you had all these people, and Republicans are going to wait till Election Day, and I never could figure out, I mean, hey, they change the rules, you play by the rules, you know? It was not a, well, you know, a strategy. Well, you know, I got to ask you about what happens, how far you go after Nixon's resignation, which I thought all of this went down in 74, right? Yep. I didn't know it all came down in 72, but didn't he resign in 74? Yeah, well, the, the burglary happens in 72 and the election. And the, the story is, and I deliberately did this in the podcast. I really only give it, you know, I think I used the news report after it happened and just a little bit of the news body around because in 72, it really wasn't a big factor. Nobody was covering um, the story. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, people, if they didn't know, I was trying to show, hey, Nixon, had, he had, it happened in, in June. Nixon had been to China in February and the Soviet Union, I think, in, in early June, right about the 1st of June, he comes back. And then you've got the conventions. And, you know, he's going from dealing with all these world powers. He's got the war he's trying to win. And he's got an election where he's got to be the candidate that goes out and campaigns, so he's not running the thing. And then it's percolating under the surface, but it wasn't a big story. And it doesn't become a really big story until, you know, they're getting set for the trial in December, so it starts to make a little more news then. But it's after this incredible 10 days, you know, I have a little series in there. It's like a mini-series to the thing. It was just 10 days in January. He's inaugurated on one day. Lyndon Johnson dies on the next day. He gets a peace agreement. Um, agreed to the next day. Then there's a f- couple days in there where there's, you know, just got all this going on. And then we have the peace agreement signed in in, uh, in Paris. And then on uh, the 30th, I think, of January, the sentencing comes in, the, the verdicts come in for those uh, defendants. And then it's big news because they've, they've been sentenced. And then there's about a couple of months in there that uh, – before they, the surrogate is going to give the sentencing and all that time they're putting pressure on these defendants to start talking. And of course, James McCord does in, in March when the, and then it blows up. So 1973 becomes the, the real period that the, the story escalates to become really the only story yeah. for the Nixon. And here's my $66 million question, whatever they say here, because $66,000 question. Um, why did he even think about this? Because obviously it had to come from Richard Nixon's lips to do this. So why even come up with this idea if he had the election in the back? Well, he he himself didn't. You know, he's not the. There's no evidence that I know of or that has ever been out there that Nixon himself ordered that break in. And you, if you kind of look at Watergate, you, you, you know, the way the Democrats always frame it, they were just always up to no good. But the the, the reality is, it's it's two different. Stories that you have the plumbers unit that's designed to deal with massive leaks that are going on in the White House, and they can't get the FBI to to figure out what's going on to to, to, sit, to stop them. So they start they form this group, of which G. Gordon Liddy is kind of this crazy guy that they he come over from Treasury, um, and he seems to be the guy they pass around to just find him something to do. But he's the plumbers unit there. They go in. That's when they break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, and there's some controversy about what the, you know, John Ehrlichman, the guy that approved that, or, you know, uh, the, the Ellsberg break-in, said he approved a covert operation. And, you know, it, it's a national security issue, and there is a loophole that allows the government to do certain things when they're dealing with national security. And, I mean, it, it, you can argue it either way. I don't think it's a good 
thing to be breaking into anybody's office. But um, you are dealing with a guy who just who had top secret clearance, who has stolen thousands of documents, and you don't know what all he's got. You know, they always say they were in there looking for stuff to smear him with. They were in there looking to figure out what all he had stolen because he had clearance to, you know, he, he could have stolen who knows what other than the Pentagon Papers. And um, so you got that part of the story. So after all this kind of, I wouldn't say blows over, but the plumbers are not really working anymore, the campaign gears up, and John Dean had hired another guy, and I want to say his name was Caulfield, but he had been a security agent for Richard Nixon to form the intelligence plans for the campaign, you know, to basically find out what they're doing. It's perfectly legit in campaigns to try to kind of keep your eye on your opponent. And they weren't happy with this guy. And Dean was aware that John, G. Gordon Liddy had had, uh, had been working for the White House in this role. And he plucks him over there and puts him over in the campaign. At the same time, they're, they're – all these people, you know, they haven't moved over from their office. Like John Mitchell is the attorney general. He don't want to leave being attorney general to go be running the campaign. So they've got these kind of obscure people, Jeb Magruder being one of them who are in there running the campaign, hold, kind of placeholders. And there's a great book called The Nixon Conspiracy by a man named Jeff Shepard that is I highly recommend it because he's really the expert. And there's a podcast called Known Unknowns that the Nixon Administration or the Nixon Foundation has done with Hugh Hewitt. So that's, you know, so you know kind of where I've I, got. I work in film media, and I have known Hewitt for the last few years now, so that's very interesting. I work yeah, at 970 he, as, a, as a radio person now. As a production guy there, so I've known a few, and I've got to check that out. Yeah, well, it's known, known unknowns. Yeah, look it up because they really get into depth, and that's where I've learned um, sort of how this kind of unfolded. But once Liddy gets over there, then that's when it gets creative with this craziness. And so I don't. Nixon had nothing to do with that. It was Jiggle and Liddy and a bunch of money. John Dino seems to have played like the I'm the I was bullied to this. I'm a victim. But you're showing a different side of this guy. Like. I don't know. I feel like he's trying to say he was innocent in all this. Well, you know what? He said something that I thought was very interesting in that at the very end of the Watergate, that documentary CNN just did, that if he had liked to do it over again, he would have stayed at Treasury and just said, I don't have the criminal um, legal experience or, or to do this job, and I don't need to do it. And I've wondered if it was just purely, I'm not going to say you know, incompetence. That's probably a good description of it, but inexperience, incompetence, whatever, that he ends up in this job. He's the counsel to the president, and he doesn't have access to the president. He's kissing up, and you see all these huge mistakes. And it just looks to me he got in over his head, and you can question, you know, his ethics or honesty. I, you know, there's plenty of people who do that. I just, you know, it is what it is. But when he said that, I thought, well, you know, that's, that might be one of the more astute things. Because that's what I think makes Watergate different than anything else is the guy who's manipulating everything from every direction is the counsel to the president. He's the lawyer whose only job description is if there's something illegal going on, you're supposed to tell these people they're not supposed to do it. And he didn't do it. Instead, he's he lets it, you know, there's one incident where apparently he told them they shouldn't be talking about this, those kind of ideas that Liddy was pushing in the attorney general's office. But as far as I know, that's the only time he ever did that. And the next thing you know, you have this mess, and he's, you know, he said he was the, you know, the center of it, no, no doubt. All right. And, and not only is he the center of it, he's also the link between the White House staff who may not have known anything, like Jill, uh, Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman, and Bob Halderman, Chuck, all these, these people that worked at the White House, and the people who were involved in the whole mess, Jed Magruder, John Mitchell, Fred LaRue, the guys who worked at the campaign. 
he is the link between the two. So really, this was a mess that Richard Nixon made know nothing about that was going on in the campaign. Right. And he's right. the one that drags it over. All right, one last question, because we talk about Bernstein Woodward, but I've got to ask you, All the President's Men, does that movie find anywhere in your documentary splash? Did you like the movie? Did you feel it was accurate? I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a very good movie. You know, if you want to be entertained, it's, there's, but the very end of that movie has something that I have always found highly offensive, and and you know, and I couldn't really use any of it in in my, because you know, you're you're stuck in the medium of podcasting because you're not on video. But if you if you've ever seen the movie, at the very end, Robert Redford, who's Bob Woodward, comes in to Dustin Hoffman's apartment. And he's like, we may, you know, we can't talk. So we're going to be both. So they go to a typewriter, and he types up, our lives may be in danger. And, you know, for two-thirds of the public who have, don't know anything about Watergate at all and don't know anything about Richard Nixon at all except what briefly they've heard in history class and that movie, they think Richard Nixon was plotting to kill Bob Woodward and, and, uh, and uh, Carl Bernstein. And that's an absolute lie. You know, he Nixon never even thought about anything like that. You know, if anything – the Nixon, the Watergate scandal is one bungled, screw-up mess decision made by that crowd at the White House, largely because I think they were manipulated by their chief counsel, and he was supposed to write a report that told them everything that happened, and he goes to the prosecutors, and so they don't really know what's going on. That's my opinion of it, and you'll hear on my oral histories when we get down the road here, you'll hear uh, Ray Price talk about, hey, we really didn't know what was we were being accused of or what was happening. And uh, and and that's the, the the revelation in Jeff Shepard's book that they were accusing him of, of paying hush money, blackmail money to Howard Hunt, and they couldn't make the link, so they just made it up. And that's that's in his book, and I like I say I recommend it. But for Woodward Bernstein to allow that to be in that movie, even if it was some kind of Hollywood, you know, to to make the plot work, that was wrong because it's not fair. Especially because an only. actual SCOTUS an actual SCOTUS judge has been his life was threatened. By yeah, someone just, just a couple weeks ago. So it's like the realities are not what they want to talk about. Literally, they don't even want to talk about it except they left how a guy was almost about to do something to Capitol. I mean, how do you not even react to that uh, White House or, or media even? So it's, it's, it's just, this has been a very interesting. But speaking of media, Randall Wallace, I'd love to have you back in the next weeks or so and uh, talk about the Frost-Nixon interview. I feel like we could do a whole half hour on that one alone. Yeah, and those are those are fascinating. And you know, there's some mythology there. Uh, I think Nixon does very well in those interviews. He uh, he held his own just fine. Nobody nobody convicted him of anything or had him all over the place the way that they uh, you know you hear now. I own at least the the, the set of them that uh, you could buy on DVD, and I think Nixon does very well in them. Um, so. I do want to get a fan base here for this interview, so come back and we'll we'll discuss more for those history fanatics that just want to, you know, learn more and, and get a different side to all this. Oh yeah, I, and I appreciate you, you know, let me let me on. I would love to have people come on and watch the listen to the podcast. It, it's going to be going on. Um, you, you, there's a lot already online that you from Vietnam to Lyndon Johnson. You know, if you want, if you're interested in that. But the Watergate stuff, I just started, so I'm about twelve or thirteen episodes in. But I'm going to be. I think the whole thing was 66. So, and 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 the coming up episode. Once I get to uh, the end of 1973, it, I've been doing sort of a timeline thing. This is going to be more advocating for about 
because you're gonna, I'm gonna go through these documents that are part of the Jeff Shepard's book, and uh, and you know I, I recommend that book, the Nixon Conspiracy by Jeff Shepard, but we'll go through those documents, and I'll show you, you know, where they were meeting in private with the judge, where um, there's a three-page memo to Richard Benvenisti that goes through all the things that were either not cooperated or weren't true that were on the tapes that John Dean had told them, and you know Benvenisti will get on national TV and say that uh, John Dean was the most cooperated witness. He ever dealt with in 50 years, you know, I wouldn't buy a used car from that guy. And uh, and and it's just it's just amazing when you look at it. And those are about 18 shows that cover from the beginning of '74 to the indictments, and then the next season, um, which I you know I usually give you a week or two break, and then we start again. We'll we'll take you through the Supreme Court arguments, Nixon's fall and resignation, and then you know kind of an epilogue of the rest of his life and the fall of Saigon and the pardon and all that. So. If they want to learn something, this, it, there's a lot of it on this on these podcasts. Thank you, Randall Wallace, for joining us today, and thank you for listening to this podcast. Be sure to follow Instagram at Alex G Podcast and Twitter, Alex G Podcast as well. We'll talk to you soon.